0: Imagine you're driving on a highway in the middle of winter. You eventually catch up to the car ahead of you. There's a red light coming up ahead, and although you try to slow down, you begin to slide, losing complete control and forcefully crashing into them. Fortunately, the impact of this accident is detected by multiple sensors, and in response, your airbag is activated, preventing you from flying forward out of your car and keeping you safe. Now imagine you are driving down a different stretch on that same highway. You are going along at a comfortable pace when suddenly your front airbag instantly deploys. The force from this pushes you to the back of your seat in shock. The same force that initially saved you from flying forward now causes you to swerve and lose control. There's no identifiable reason for why the airbag deployed. Perhaps there was a manufacturing defect with the sensors. In this situation, the unprovoked deployment of the airbag is similar to the idiopathic granulomas of sarcoidosis. Just as airbags can save our lives in an accident, our immune system forms granulomas in response to threats. However, in sarcoidosis, the idiopathic formation of granulomas can result in significant multi-organ dysfunction, just as an inappropriately deployed airbag can cause harm. Today, our patient has sarcoidosis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on-call. Today's episode is entitled, The Uninvited Granulomas, An Approach to Sarcoidosis. All right, time for a minute physiology. Sarcoidosis is a systemic disease of unknown cause, characterized by the formation of granulomas. First, it is important to understand the process behind granuloma formulation. When our bodies are exposed to unknown antigens, they are engulfed by macrophages and presented to helper CD4 cells. If the antigen is thought to be a threat, and the body cannot clear it, the CD4 cells respond with the secretion of multiple cytokines, including interleukins and TNF-alpha, To activate and recruit more immune cells to the site of exposure. These cells will then congregate to form a walled-in enclosure around the pathogen, and this collection of cells is known as a granuloma. When our body is exposed to threats such as tuberculosis, fungi, viruses, or beryllium, the formation of a granuloma is a protective mechanism. Now, in sarcoidosis, an unknown antigen is thought to trigger an overreaction of the immune response resulting in the pathological formation of non-caseating or non-necrosing granulomas. This is different from caseating granulomas, where you can see destruction of cells which are converted to amorphous debris, otherwise known as necrosis, located centrally within the granuloma. This is an important distinction, as the most common causes of caseating granulomas are tuberculosis and fungal infections, such as histoplasmosis and coccidiomycosis. The differential for non-caseating granulomas includes sarcoidosis, Crohn's disease, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, berylliosis, and silicosis. There have been multiple environmental exposures identified as risk factors for developing this disease. The earliest studies reported associations with wood-burning stoves, tree pollen, inorganic particles, insecticides, and moldy environments. Occupations such as being in the Navy metalworking, and firefighting have been associated with an increased risk of sarcoidosis. Specifically, New York City Fire Department rescue workers involved in the 2001 World Trade Center disaster were also found to be at increased risk. Mycobacterial and propionibacterial DNA and RNA have been recovered from sarcoidal tissue, suggesting exposure to these pathogens may also have a role. With respect to genetics, there have been multiple HLA gene mutations linked to sarcoidosis. However, current familial forms of the disease are thought to make up less than 10% of cases. Although most commonly found in lymph nodes and lungs, in sarcoidosis the granulomas can form anywhere, including the eyes, skin, meninges, and nerves, the myocardium of the heart, kidneys, liver, spleen, and within the bones. The inflammation can eventually result in fibrosis, causing permanent damage. Now, let's pretend you are in a respirology clinic and seeing a 35-year-old previously healthy patient presenting with a 6-month history of shortness of breath and cough. They have evidence of hilar adenopathy and pulmonary infiltrates on the chest X-ray, prompting a referral to you for query sarcoidosis. Before seeing this patient, it's important for you to understand what features should make you suspicious for sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis typically presents in patients between the ages of 25 to 45. The highest rates have been reported in Northern Europeans and African Americans. It most commonly presents as an asymptomatic intrathoracic nodal disease, incidentally found on chest x-ray. The pattern of bilateral hyaluradenopathy with or without paratracheal nodes is classic for sarcoidosis. Although sarcoidosis can affect nearly any organ, it presents in the lymph nodes or lungs in 90% of cases. The next thing to note is how symptomatic patients will present to guide what you ask on history. In chronic pulmonary sarcoidosis, which is the most common form, the symptoms are non-specific and include persistent cough, dyspnea, chest pain, low-grade fever, weakness, weight loss, arthralgias, and peripheral adenopathy. In some cases, patients may only report chronic fatigue. Crackles and clubbing on exam are rare. As discussed previously, sarcoidosis can affect nearly any organ, so let's review the extra pulmonary symptoms you should screen for, with the head-to-toe approach. Starting with the eyes. Ocular manifestations can include anterior or posterior uveitis or chronic iridocyclitis. Ask about eye pain, photophobia, hyperemia, and vision changes. Neurologic involvement can include the central or peripheral nervous system. Screen for any neuropathic symptoms and examine for focal deficits if indicated. Cardiac involvement can present with a cardiomyopathy, as well as conduction system abnormalities, including third-degree heart block. Screening for symptoms of heart failure, palpitations, and unexplained syncope is important. Hepatic involvement can ultimately result in cirrhosis. Examine the patient for hepatomegaly and any other evidence of decompensation, including jaundice or ascites. Dermatologic involvement is also common. The most common skin finding is erythema nodosum, a rash characterized by highly sensitive nodules surrounded by erythema, located on extensor surfaces of the limbs. Lupus pernio is another finding characterized by painful, flat, blue or red discoloration, often occurring on the face. Now, due to the activated alpha-1 hydroxylase within granulomas, Calcium levels in the body may increase and patients may endorse symptoms of hypercalcemia. Ask about renal colic and bony pain. Finally, there are two acute presentations that are classic for sarcoidosis. First is Lofgren's syndrome, which is composed of the triad of bilateral hyaluradenopathy, arthralgias, and erythema nodosum. Lofgren's has a high rate of spontaneous resolution. Second is Herefort syndrome, which is characterized by anterior uveitis, facial nerve palsy, parotid gland enlargement, and low-grade fever. This would often be treated to reduce the risk of persistent nerve palsy. However, these presentations represent a minority of sarcoidosis cases, with Lofgren's representing less than 5-10% to of cases and Herefort's representing less than 1% of cases. If after your history and physical, you remain suspicious that your patient has sarcoidosis, what should you do next? Let's start with blood work. All patients should get a CBC, electrolyte panel, creatinine, calcium, and liver enzymes. The role of serum ACE levels in sarcoidosis remains controversial. ACE levels will be elevated in 70% of patients with acute sarcoidosis, but are less frequently elevated in chronic disease. Up to 10% of elevated ACE levels may be caused by non-sarcoidosis-related conditions. Overall, the test has a poor sensitivity and specificity for diagnosis. A chest x-ray and usually a high-resolution CT scan should be done to assess for lung involvement. Lung involvement may include hilar or mediastinal adenopathy, interstitial disease with fibrosis, nodules and beating in a bronchovascular distribution, ground glass opacities, or nodular consolidation. Pulmonary function tests should be completed and may show a restrictive pattern with decreased DLCO. It may also demonstrate an obstructive pattern or mixed pattern, which can be seen in those with endobronchial sarcoidosis. If indicated, a BAL showing lymphocytosis and an elevated CD4 to CD8 ratio, defined as greater than 3.5, can also support the diagnosis. A baseline ECG should be done in all patients to screen for cardiac involvement. If suspicion for cardiac involvement is high, or there are abnormalities on an ECG, you can also consider a Holter monitor and echocardiogram. A cardiac MRI or dedicated PET scan are your best options to truly confirm cardiac involvement. The key to diagnosing sarcoidosis is a demonstration of non-caseating granulomas on tissue biopsy in the appropriate clinical and radiological context. Any tissue with suspected involvement can be biopsied, but most commonly mediastinal lymph nodes are targeted. Once granulomas are identified, other granulomatous diseases such as TB and chronic fungal infections, beryllium exposure, and lymphoma should be ruled out. Of note, patients who present with Lofgren's and Heerfordt syndromes do not require biopsies for diagnosis. All patients with a confirmed diagnosis of sarcoidosis should undergo a screening evaluation by ophthalmology. So when and how are patients with sarcoidosis treated? The decision to initiate therapy is controversial for a number of reasons. First, in many cases, sarcoidosis will undergo spontaneous remission. Second, there is a lack of evidence that treatment actually alters the natural history of the disease. Initiating treatment depends on the stage of the disease and the specific site of organ involvement. Sarcoidosis is staged based on chest x-ray findings. Stage 1 is characterized by bilateral adenopathy alone. Stage 2, by bilateral adenopathy with pulmonary infiltration. Stage 3 is pulmonary infiltration without bilateral adenopathy, and stage 4 is pulmonary fibrosis. In general, stage 1 sarcoidosis is not treated, as 60-90% to will undergo spontaneous remission within 2 years. The decision to treat other cases depends on the patient's symptoms and the risk of initiating immunosuppressive treatment. In patients with stage 2 and 3 disease, treatment is initiated if patients are symptomatic show a decline in their pulmonary function tests over time, or demonstrate progressive radiographic changes. There are some absolute indications for sarcoidosis treatment, including ocular, neurologic, and cardiac involvement, as well as evidence of hypercalcemia or other life-threatening organ dysfunction. The treatment for sarcoidosis is immunosuppression, with prednisone dosed at 20-40 to mg PO daily for 4 weeks. After four weeks, the patient should be reassessed to see if there has been a response. Treatment is then typically continued for 9 to 12 months with a planned taper. For patients who have intolerable steroid side effects such as weight gain, psychosis, osteoporosis, or myopathy, or who develop recurrent disease upon tapering, or whose disease does not respond to steroids, medications such as methotrexate, azathioprine, and the flutamide can be used. Inhaled corticosteroids are sometimes used for treating symptoms such as cough, obstruction, and bronchial hyperresponsiveness. For patients with stage 4 advanced fibrosis and associated pulmonary hypertension with symptoms, lung transplant can be considered. Alright, time for a medicine minute. We will briefly review the role for biologics in treating sarcoidosis. Since TNF-alpha is key to inducing granuloma formation, it makes sense that the inhibition of the TNF pathway may assist in dissolution of the granulomas. In 2006, a large randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial was conducted in 138 patients with chronic pulmonary sarcoidosis. Patients were randomized to either 6 IV infusions of infliximab or placebo over a 24-week period. It was found that infliximab therapy resulted in a statistically significant improvement in FVC at 24 weeks, supporting the role for further evaluation of TNF-alpha in severe, chronic, symptomatic sarcoidosis. Adalimumab has shown similar efficacy to infliximab. The indications for anti-TNF therapy in sarcoidosis are derived from the experience with infliximab and include pulmonary disease for more than one year, FVC less than 55%, moderate to severe dyspnea, reticulonodular infiltrates, increased pet activity in the lungs, and severe extrapulmonary findings. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Uninvited Granulomas, an Approach to Sarcoidosis. This episode was written by Dr. Julie Semenchek, Internal Medicine Resident, and reviewed by Dr. Chris Lee, Respirology, and Dr. James Rassos, General Internal Medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai, sound edits by Nathan Dubnik. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Carey Nobles, and Zara Morelli. Theme song by Lakshmi Visantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.